Good morning, everybody. Is anyone else thrown like I am when Jacob shaves? Like, when he said, what's in the bag? I was like, your beard, maybe? (laughs) Every year it throws me. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. I'll get into safer territory here. Ephesians chapter four, we're taking a break from our study through Matthew this week so that we can talk about the life and ministry of our church and we're turning to a central passage in that regard. Ephesians chapter four, if you're taking notes, the title of my sermon today is Building the Church of Christ. The great Chicago fire of 1871 reduced more than three square miles of Chicago to rubble. Uh, The blaze burned for days and then smoldered for days and eventually it was determined that that fire destroyed some 17,000 buildings, leaving more than 100,000 homeless and killing probably 300 people. It was a terrible fire, it jumped the rivers and it was just incredible how hot it burnt and everything was packed together. But the people of Chicago and and the the United States really had the spirit to rebuild. They had a vision to remake Chicago out of the rubble, to reconstruct a a new modern urban city. And so reconstruction efforts began uh, almost immediately and architectural geniuses from around the country raced in to help rebuild the city, to help lay the foundation for a modern city that would feature the world's first skyscrapers uh, as well. And these architects, they wanted to build the future. They had a vision for building this urban future. And also, they wanted to build a name for themselves and for their design schools. And as buildings began to take shape in Chicago, what emerged was this fascinating landscape of different designs, various monuments to human genius. As we turn to the letter of Ephesians today, we turn to a different architectural plan. One fashion not for the praise of man's genius, but for the praise of God's glorious grace. Here the divine designer is building something out of the rubble of humanity in our sin. Reading this letter, we see how God's perfect plan stretches from eternity past to eternity future, and in every phase of this design of what he is building, we see the preeminence of Jesus Christ through it all, and yet this plan has a structure to it. God has something he is building. He is building his church. At the very center of God's cosmic plan is a structure on display for the cosmos to marvel at. It is the church of Jesus Christ. We see this in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. For instance, Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is doing something in the church 
to display his manifold wisdom. The church is God's crowning architectural accomplishment. That's why Jesus Christ was determined, saying, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is God's crowning architectural accomplishment, and yet, sometimes we look around at the church, we look around the church at 2020, 2021, in the United States of America, we look around the church, and we say, it doesn't look all that impressive to me. Sometimes we look around and we say, you know what, it seems like the gates of hell are prevailing against the church. Maybe we look at our own experiences in the church and we say, I can definitely point to some battles where hell was winning. Being made up of sinners, the church being made up of sinners, it's not hard to find things wrong with the church its imperfections, its weaknesses, its limitations are obvious. And with such knowledge, sometimes it's easy for us to wonder, why make a big deal about the church? What is the big deal about the church? Why should I invest my treasure, time, and talents in a church? And then, of course, if we have a moment of honesty, we have to also remember that we contribute to the problems of the church, because we're all sinners. So we're part of the problem, too. Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon. He said, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect to a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. Friends, when we're tempted to doubt the wisdom of God's plan that centers on the church, when we're tempted to question if the church can in fact be the dearest place on earth, we must return to the truth of God's word. Yes, the church is not yet what it will be, but here in Ephesians is God's divine design for how he is building his church. And remember, it is a structure intended to showcase not the perfections of Christians, but the grace of God to imperfect Christians. So in our passage today, Ephesians chapter four, we want to look at one aspect of God's plan for the church. This is the blueprint for how God is building his church, for how Jesus Christ is building his church. And through this passage, he is calling us to not watch from the fringe, but to join in at the heart of this construction project. So this is Jesus' plan for building the church, and friends, there's no plan B. This is how he does it. So, let's begin reading Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 4, and we will read through verse 16. This is the word of God. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. But... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In our passage today, we find at least four ways Jesus is building his church. Four ways he's building his church, and the first is through gracious gifts. Through gracious gifts. Let me draw your attention to a transition that takes place between verses 6 and 7. Please note in verse 6 the use of the word all. The use of the word all. Note its repetition. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now note in verse 7, Paul changes to the phrase, each one of us. Here Paul is transitioning from all of us, in verse 6, to each one of us, in verse 7. We're transitioning from the unity of the church, in verses 1 through 6, to the diversity of the church, in verses 7 through 16. Paul turns to the diversity of the church, but it's a diversity that is... Uh, intended to contribute to the well-being of the whole. It's meant to enrich the unity. So the vision he has here is one of every member ministry. That's what we call it, every member ministry. Every member working together to build up the whole, to build up the body. So again, verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us. Here we see that each member of the church has received grace from Jesus Christ. I have received grace from Jesus Christ. You have received grace from Jesus Christ. We all have received grace from Jesus Christ. He gives grace to all of us, and he doesn't leave anybody out. Every Christian has received something according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, John Stott makes a helpful distinction for us here. When we read in verse 7 that we are recipients of grace, we need to distinguish between saving grace and serving grace. Every Christian has received saving grace. That's what we see in Ephesians 2. But grace was given to each one of us. In Ephesians 4, we also see every Christian is a recipient of serving grace. That is, grace given to serve other people. And this grace comes to us in the form of gifts. Christ builds his church through gracious gifts. And not one of us is left out. 
I emphasize that because I find there to be a lot of unbelief in this connection. Not everybody believes they have a grace that the rest of us needs. So let me ask you, do you believe there has been given to you an impartation of service grace that we need? Do you believe Jesus has given you gifts that this church needs? Yes, this includes spiritual gifts like administration and teaching and helping, but it also includes the gifts of grace such as life experiences where you have lessons to teach and seasons of life where maybe you have more to give. All of these are gracious gifts. Regarding the ideas of spiritual gifts, if you're not sure what your spiritual gifts are, let me recommend three chapters in scripture for you to study. That would be 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4. And these passages is listed out for us, various spiritual gifts. It's not an exhaustive list, I don't believe, but they are kind of like the basics and a great place for us to begin and begin study and think about what are my spiritual gifts that I ought to be contributing to the church. But I don't wanna go into the depths of that today. Instead, I wanna think about these two implications out of all this for us. The first is this. This means we need each other. This means we need it, each other. It means we are a needy people. If you confess that you are in need of more of God's grace in your life, that is a confession that you need more of the church in your life. You need more of God's people in your life. He builds his church by pouring his grace into your life through the grace he's given to other people. But this means you have to avail yourself of Christian community. This means you have to avail yourselves of community group ministry here. This means you have to avail yourself to making friends with people here. That's one implication of this passage. We are a needy people. A second is this, we need you. We need you. This church needs you. We are needy and you are needed. God inspired Paul to write this passage to convince you of this. You are needed here. You are necessary here. You are essential to the mission and ministry of Covenant of Grace Church. You are utterly essential to God accomplishing his purposes here. You may not feel like you are that, you may not feel like the grace that you have is all that much, the gift that you have is all that unique to give, but every part must play its part for the body to be built up. And when every part is not playing its part, whatever part that is, then the body of Christ is not built up. A small bolt in a machine that breaks can break the whole machine. Every part's necessary, every part is needed. Christ builds his church through gracious gifts. Now, having said all that, it's here in our passage that Paul interrupts this program to bring us a special news bulletin. Or whatever they play to get your attention. Yeah, I bring you a special news bulletin. Paul has for us a good news bulletin. He he essentially, that's what he's doing in verses eight, nine, and 10. He just interrupts his train of thought here to announce the ascension of Jesus Christ. And at first this kind of seems random, but its purpose is to signal the preeminence of Jesus in building his church through the grace that he gives. 
Because notice how verse seven is written. Paul's thinking goes like this. He says, but grace was given to each one of us. Where did that grace come from? According to the measure of Christ's gift. Oh, that makes me think of how he gave these gifts. Let me tell you about it. That's essentially what he's doing. See, our attention is easily drawn to the fact that grace is given to each one of us. And that's understandable because we have, means we have a, you know, a call on our life. There's application to be done. But the theological weight of this passage is that grace has been given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What gift? When did he give us a gift? How did he give us a gift? Where did this come about? Paul says, let me tell you, verses eight through 10. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And a saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. These verses tell us how it is that Christ came to give grace to his church. The theme here is Jesus' ascension, and we're told in this quote from Psalm 68 that Jesus ascended on high. Now, let me illustrate this for you. And I won't go to Lord of the Rings this morning, but I will instead use a sports illustration. I know, there's... For our guests this morning, this is evidence of grace in my life. (laughs) Because I have, you know, zero sports abilities or interests. But something in this moment tapped into the fact that I come from Indiana and basketball flows in the veins of all true uh, Indianaites. And so I got a basketball one that came to my mind for you guys. So here it is. If you love basketball, this one's for you. In basketball, you talk about a man's vertical jump. And so I grew up in the era of Michael Jordan, the man who owned the vertical leap. And he kept us on the edge of our seats because we were all waiting for that collective, we are all collectively waiting for that moment when he would just, he had his tongue. The man could fly. LeBron James, AKA King James, has a respectable 44 inch vertical leap. Anthony Webb, AKA Spud Webb, an impressive 46 inch jump. But Michael Jordan, AKA Air Jordan, AKA his airness, an incredible 48 inch launch. That's a full four feet up in the air, which puts his head six inches above the rim. Michael Jordan got up there, but Jesus Christ, (laughs) upon the ascension, or his resurrection, we're told here, he ascended on high. Cue the preaching moment. He ascended into the heavenly 
places. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He ascended above all earthly rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus ascended as head over all things for the purpose of filling all in all. Friends, we're talking about one getting up there and not just getting up there. We're talking about one that's got some serious hang time because Jesus Christ is still up there. He's still up there ruling over everything and interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. He's still up there and he'll be up there until he comes back to take us to him. Jesus has ascended on high and when he ascended, we're told here, he did two things. He first led a host of captives. He led a host of captives. Now I love this, what's this referring to? Well, it's a reference to all the Old Testament saints who died. They died waiting on the coming Messiah. They died waiting with faith in a Messiah. And so after his death, Jesus descended to the place that the Hebrews called Shalom. It's what the Greeks call Hades. It's the place of death. It's not an unpleasant place, but it was not heaven yet. Uh, those, it was a place where they were still held captive by death. And so Jesus descended to the place of death to proclaim his victory over death. This is what we read about in 1 Peter 3.19 where we're told Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And then when he rose from the dead, he led them into heaven. He took the Old Testament saints with him. Revelation 1.8, Jesus declared, I am the living one. I was dead. I love this. And now look. <laughs> Isn't that great? Jesus is like, I was dead. Now look at me. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Commenting on this passage, theologian Millard Erickson writes, the death of Jesus was the low point in his humiliation. The overcoming of death through the resurrection was the first step back in the process of his exaltation, or what we're talking about today, his ascension. This is particularly significant, follow this, for inflicting death was the worst thing sin and the powers of sin could do to Christ. Yet, in the inability of death to hold him is symbolized the totality of his victory. What more can the forces of evil do if someone whom they have killed does not stay dead? Isn't that a good line? What more can the forces of evil do if someone whom they have killed does not stay dead? What's the point? Jesus is triumphant. And not only does he not stay dead, but he ascended on high, leading a host of captives with him. So basically, the thing is, he defeated death, he knocked it to the ground, he took its keys and said, I'm taking the prisoners with me. This is the triumph of Jesus, and yet, Paul says, still there's more. Still there's more. Because in celebration of his total and absolute victory over death, we read here that not only did he lead a host of captives, but he also gave gifts to men. Upon his ascension, his first regal order in heaven was start giving out the gifts to my people because the king has come home. 
Gifts of grace that can be used to build up one another. Gifts of grace, just like the grace that he gave us where he spent his life to save us. He now pours grace into us that we might use that grace to serve others. Friends, Christ is building his church through gracious gifts. And the application for us is this. Every time we use the grace that God has given us to serve somebody else, every time we use that grace, we are declaring and demonstrating Jesus Christ's exaltation over all things. Every use of grace is a way of glorifying Jesus Christ as the one who defeated death, ascended on high, blessed us with many gracious gifts, not to be used on ourselves, but to be poured out into the life of other people so that everyone may know Jesus Christ is gracious. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace. So we need to use these gifts. We need to use this grace to magnify Jesus Christ. Jesus is building his church through gracious gifts. All right, we've got a lot more to cover, so let's, let's book it through a couple here. Point number two, another way he's building the church is through gifted leaders. Through gifted leaders. Beginning, or picking up in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, which is another word for pastors, or same word we use as pastors, and teachers. So in verse seven, we saw that the ascended Jesus gave grace to each of us individually. Here in verse 11, we find his grace also come to us in the form of leaders whom he gives to all of us collectively. For the sake of time, we're not gonna look at each one of these kinds of leaders here, but the point is, is that Jesus has given gifted leaders to establish churches, grow churches, care for and instruct churches. Men whose gifts are governed by God's word and men whose responsibility includes equipping the saints for ministry. So this is verses 12 through 14. Look there with me. <clears throat> God gave these, these men, these leaders to the church for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here we learn that Jesus builds this church through gifted leaders What's our job? What's my job? Well, obviously part of it's to preach and teach. That's what I do to provide pastoral care. Of course, that's what I do. But here is a main function of what your pastors are called to do, to equip you for the work of ministry. Through teaching and training and care, leaders don't monopolize ministry. We multiply ministry. This is what Moses did in Exodus 18. He delegated out the job to all kinds of other leaders. This is the model Jesus had when he started calling the 12 and then calling the 72 and sending them all out. The point is not to monopolize ministry in the leadership, but to multiply it out by equipping and sending out the saints to care for one another. John Wimber has written this, all too often Christians expect pastors to emulate secular helping professions. We expect medical doctors to treat us not train us to treat ourselves. We expect lawyers to advise us, not to train us to solve our own problems. Hence, we expect pastors to serve us, not train us to do the work of ministry. I think this is the expectation many bring into the church. They think of their tithe as a way of paying the pastors to do the work of ministry for them. But that has more to do with the business model than it does the biblical model. 
Listen, we appreciate secular helping professors, professions here. I, I'm about to have a dentist appointment. I'm not going there so the dentist can train me how to take care of my teeth. I'm going there for the dentist to take care of my teeth. So I'm grateful to God for the secular helping profession. But your pastors do not seek to emulate them here. The leaders of this church are committed to using our gifts not to monopolize the ministry, but to multiply it out. And that's because that's how Jesus builds his church through gifted leaders who equip the church for the work of ministry and to speak the truth in love. So, enough talking about me and my job, let's talk about yours. Point three this morning, Jesus is building his church through acts of service. Through acts of service. What do leaders equip saints to do? Verse 12 gives us our first answer. He says, the work of ministry. The work of ministry, now what's that? Well, that's everything that's included for building up a church. So it's a long list. But the nature of that work, the nature of that work is found inherent in the term ministry. The Greek of that word means to serve, service. So the work of ministry includes using the grace given to us by God, the gifts God's given us in service to others. Jesus builds his church through acts of service. This means we come to church not mainly to be served, but to serve. I'm letting that sink in because I imagine it's not how all of us came to church today. We tend to look at church like it's an extension of our Saturday night. Saturday night's fun and restful, and then Sunday morning is like holy and restful. Like I come in here and I'm gonna feel with my friends, and I'm gonna get kind of juiced up for the week to come, and, but it's still about mostly me. I come to be served, not to serve. Church is where people serve. And what Paul's teaching us here is maturity in Christ looks like being a contributor, not a consumer. When people initially come, particularly as new converts, they're in a consuming stage. We get that. It's legitimate. They need to be taught. They need to be fed. They need to be cared for. But the goal is not that they remain perpetually in that state. The goal is that they become contributors. Bruce Shelley has written, in recent years, Americans have chosen churches not so much to meet with God and surrender to his ways as to satisfy some personal need. Unlike the rich young ruler in the Gospels, church attenders seldom ask, what must I do? They are far more likely to ask, what do I get out of this? In America's inward drifted or directed culture, this means that every congregation must challenge its members to be more than consumers of religion. Follow this line. He says, the church was never designed to permanently be a haven to those terminally addicted to self-interest. <laughs> That's a, that's a well-written line. The church was never designed to permanently be a haven to those terminally addicted to self-interest. Jesus did not design this to be a place where you come to be served. He designed it as a place for you primarily to be a place for you to serve. And a healthy church, a mature church, is a church made up of hard-working servants. 
Now, by God's grace, we have a lot of hardworking servants here. We have a lot of ministry team leaders that are working hard. We have musicians up front every Sunday. We have sound teams and videos in the back every Sunday. We have ushers. We have a lot of servants here, and that's great, and I thank God for that. And if you're serving on a ministry team, I commend you for it. Thank you for doing that. Now, that being said, as Bert already highlighted, we, already, we still have a lot of service needs in this church. We have a lot of service needs. And so some of them are gonna line up with your gifting, which is fantastic. I hope you will jump in. Some of them aren't gonna line up with your gifting, but they're still a need of this family. I take the trash out in my family most of the time. I take the trash out in my family. Is it because I'm gifted at taking the trash out in my family? No. <laughs> like, I don't have many gifts, and that's not one of them either. I do it because it's a need. And we all have needs in this church that we can step up and help fill. And so your pastor's job is to equip you. And that word equip means to fix what's broken or supply what's lacking. So part of our job is to connect you with ministry needs here, to connect you with opportunities for you to serve. And that's what today is partly about. We're setting up these tables and we're having people out there to talk to you and sign up for things because we need people to jump into service opportunities. And you're gonna say to me, well, pastor, how can I possibly go out and sign up to serve on a team when I don't have any time to pray about it or talk to my wife about it? And I would say, well, what do you need to pray about? God just told you to do it. And your spouse will say, yeah, okay, God said so. <laughs> in fact, it was great after first service, we were talking in a group and the wife came over to some husband and said, hey, you need to go sign up for that team over there. And he was like, uh, okay, yeah. And I was just kind of like, way to go, wife. Like, that's exactly right. Like, kick him out, go, get into it. We all just have to step up. And God has given us grace to do that. If there are legitimate needs in this church, then I'm sure he's supplying the grace for us to meet those needs. Jesus builds his church through acts of service. Lastly, last thing we want to look at is Jesus builds his church through loving truth. Through loving truth. Acts of service are significant, but acts of, or I mean words of loving truth are significant too, even primary maybe. It's the truth spoken lovingly that keeps us from what verse 14 describes, being tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Listen, church, so much of the construction of this church and any church happens through our commitment to speak the truth in love. And relevant to note in our day is what Paul talks about down in verse 29 of the same chapter, where you can see how easily a church is torn down through destructive speech. Words are powerful. Proverbs 18.29 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our words can either give life or they can take it away. And one significant way Jesus intends to build his church is through a church that speaks to itself the truth in love. 
Now this is one reason why your pastors, who are called to equip you to this task, this is one reason why we labor to preach and teach sound doctrine Sunday after Sunday. And it's why our 40, 45 minute, 50 minute sermons are light on stories and heavy on scripture. Because our job is not to entertain you, our job is to educate you in the truth so that you can build each other up in loving truth. This is also why we structure our community group fellowship the way that we do, normally around the passage preached on Sunday. It's because we want you to fill your head with truth and speak it lovingly into each other's lives. Also, this is why we should live in the light with our community group and with our friends. We should be intentional ourselves to do this. We should want people to know where we're struggling, what temptations we have, how we're suffering, because we want people to speak the truth into our life in a loving way. Now at this point, I just wanna commend for a minute our community group leaders. Uh, we have some great community group leaders who really care for us as a church and do a good job trying to facilitate this kind of fellowship week in and week out. Do we have any community group leaders here? Could you please raise your hand if you are, please? We have a few. Can we thank these, these folks for serving us? Thank you. It's not easy leading the group of us, so community group leaders, thank you for doing that. You serve us well. Uh, thank you for trying to facilitate this kind of fellowship week in and week out. Uh, for those of you who are not in a community group, let me invite you into this. This is kind of the lifeblood of our church. It's Sunday mornings and then weekly gathering. We read about this in Acts, that the church was committed to gathering, to the preaching of God's word, and to the fellowship. That would be the fellowship of the saints, week in and week out. And so that's what we do with the church through our community groups. I encourage you to be involved in one. We want everyone involved in a community group. But not only do that, but we also want to be intentional with our time in community groups. So church, can I exhort you, do not float into community group. Do not kind of just drift down the lazy river into community group, but come into community group always intentional. Come in uh, expecting to speak words of truth, but also come in needing truth spoken into your life. We all have that need, but sometimes you have to be intentional to say, you know what, tonight I need to make sure that I invite loving truth spoken into areas in my life. So for myself, I've always found it helpful to kind of have a little grid that I take into community group night to think through how to be intentional with the night, how to redeem the time. And so I think through three categories uh, often, and it's what do I need to confess? What do I need counsel on? Or what's something I need care for? because I'm suffering. Something I confess, something I need counsel for or about, or something I need care over. Now usually I'm not trying to bring all three of those in. If I bring in all three of those into one night, I'm an absolute mess and my community group needs to be devoted to me that evening. But usually I'm trying to say like there's something in one of those categories all the time that I can be bringing to community group and I can invite people, please speak into my life. Please speak the truth in love. I need it. I want to grow up in Christ. I need the grace in your life. Please speak into my life. Listen, here's the reality. This church just like every church is filled with people struggling with sin and the effects of sin. Not one of us here is fully formed in the image of Christ. And all of us, 
to one degree or another are straying from him, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. We're all fighting temptations here. Some of us are struggling to love our spouse. Some are struggling to honor our boss. Some are struggling with fear related to COVID or related to mandates. Some are struggling with pornography. Some are struggling with anger. Some are struggling with loneliness. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And what we need is the truth spoken in love. Other of us are burdened under trials right now. Trials are pressure. Trials are burdens. And the way we help bear one another's burdens is through the truth spoken in love. So let's all be intentional with our community groups to go into them looking to speak words of life and love and truth, but also to invite them as well. The church is a hospital for saved sinners who are suffering through this life. And one of the main ways we heal up and grow up and go out is by growing up into our head who is Jesus Christ through speaking the truth in love to each other. So let me conclude all of the the message with this. What we learn here in Ephesians 4 is that each one of us is to be a joint of supply in the body of Christ. Connected, strengthened, and used to build up the church. Christ has given each of us grace for service He has given us leaders to equip the church for acts of service and truth spoken in love. This is how Jesus builds his church, through an every member ministry. Every part doing its part to build up the body of Christ. But our participation does not construct a monument to our genius or to our gifting Rather, it constructs a monument to his grace. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace. So let's glorify him with how we build this church. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, uh, we thank you that you have given us instructions for how you're building your church and how we can join with you. Lord, it's just so easy to, to be a consumer and not a contributor. It's just so easy to be blessed by other people serving and not see the opportunity where we could jump in and help out. It's so easy to just kind of coast into community group and not be intentional with fellowship. But God, today is a wonderful reminder from your word and by your spirit that you have given us grace. Grace that's not intended just for us, but to be used in other people's lives. So God, help us to spend that grace all for the glory of your name. Help us to give it away so that people would know not how great we are, but how great and gracious the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. God, be magnified in our midst, and I pray, help build this church as the light of the world. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.